Welcome back to another week in the world of SaaS with what else but the official SaaS to podcast brought to you by the main man Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter and me Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at HStebbings on Snapchat. Now for the show today, very few companies do I have such personal affinity for, but this product really is one I use every day for referencing work with the 20 Minute VC to background checks on all guests. I really could not live without it. So I'm delighted to welcome Andy Sparks, co founder and head of sales at Matamart to the show today. Andy was previously the technology editor at Referly before the company pivoted to become Matamark. And Andy joined the Referly team via an aqua hire of his company, LaunchGram by Referly in February of 2014, uh, which he'll explain a lot more about in the show. Uh, but I'm going to leave the bio there as Andy really does do a much better job of doing it himself. So without further ado, I'm super excited to welcome Andy Sparks, co-founder at Matamark. You have now arrived at your destination. Andy, welcome to the official Sasta podcast. Uh, everyone knows I'm a massive fan of Massimok, so it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited for this. Now, talk to me, Andy. How did you come to be co-founder of, of as we said, one of my favorite startups in Massimok? What's the origin story for you? Man, there's, a, there's quite a story. So Danielle Morrill, who's the CEO of Matamark, uh, she and I became friends in probably one of the most cliche um, startup founder meeting stories. Maybe I don't know, maybe not ever, but yeah. So we met actually at South by Southwest, maybe something like six years ago. And there was another company that was starting inside of like a tour bus. And we were just introduced through mutual friends. Both of us kind of kind of hate being at conferences. You know, there's a lot of disingenuous conversations that you have with new people and you never really get to know anyone on a really deep level at a conference. And so usually what she and I tend to do at conferences is find one or two people and then just kind of like hunker down and hang out. And uh, we actually, so we, so we were introduced at this conference. We ended up just talking about science fiction books and beer uh, and hanging out like all night. And uh, I actually lived in Ohio at the time. And so uh, I moved, I moved back, I went back to Ohio at the end of that conference and then maybe a year or so later, I called up Danielle and I said, Hey, I uh, just moved to Mountain View with two of my best friends. We're starting a company and we're going to try to get into an accelerator there. And she basically said to me, like, no shit, because I just moved to Mountain View and we just got into Y Combinator with the company that I'm starting. I just quit my job at Twilio. And so I was starting this company that, which just for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to get into. Uh, but I was starting a company. We got into 500 startups. She got into Y Combinator and we would hang out every Friday for what we called CEO therapy, which was basically drink a bunch of beer and talk about how we have no idea what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that's when we really got to know each other pretty well. Maybe a year and a half into my business, I ended up closing it down for one, because I got into the business for all the wrong reasons. It wasn't something I really wanted to work on. And two, it wasn't working. So uh, I closed it down and I had a job offer in New York and I was about ready to move to New York. And Danielle texted me that she wanted to buy my startup, which was Danielle talk for, you know, she likes to talk in grandiose terms sometimes. Um, so I, I went and I met with her and she was just like, Hey, look, don't move to New York. Uh, Referly, which is what Mattermark was, uh, she says, Referly is not really working yet. So why don't you just come join Kevin and I and we'll build something else. We have this much money left in the bank and I'll give you 10 grand to pay off, you know, a fifth of your credit card debt. <laughs> so, so you got acquired. Well done. I mean, that's a fantastic I mean, exit for you. I think that acquired makes it sound really nice. <laughs> Stealing from Danielle in the grandiose terms. But I want to start then today at day one for you. Um, and as a young and fresh faced 27 year old that you are, uh, you'd never scaled a sales org before. So how was that very early experience for you scaling the sales org? Let's start with that. Yeah, that's a really good question. 
I think one of the most important things when you're 27 and doing anything <laughs> uh, is to understand what you don't know or to try to know what you don't know, which obviously is a challenge in and of itself because you, you've just never done any of this before. So how are you going to know that? And uh, Jason even pointed something out fairly recently on Twitter, just about making sure that if you are a stretch V or there's stretch VP that you make sure that you get outside help. And that's kind of how I've always approached my career is that I know that I don't know a lot of things. And so I go try to find two or three people who have done what I'm about to go do, uh, kind of ask them for their advice or not necessarily even their advice, but just to tell me their story of what it was like when they were you know, 30 or 40 or 50 or now 60 people and growing a sales org at our size and basically getting their feedback. I'm intrigued. What have been the biggest learnings for you then since having that mentor or advisor who's done done it before, walked down your track before? What's been the biggest learning for you from having that additional support? Oh, man. Overall, I wish that I would have done it far sooner. I wish that we, we as a company would have engaged someone to help us figure out uh, how to run a, a professional sales organization a lot sooner. I think we would have benefited from it. One of the biggest learnings for me has really just been understanding kind of the intertwined relationship between marketing, sales, sales development, and what you ask your account execs. Or when I say account execs, I mean your closing sales reps, inside sales reps, and what you're asking them to do on a day-to-day basis. So I guess let me unpack that a little bit. So marketing is sourcing leads for your team. Your sales development reps are qualifying and processing those leads that come inbound from marketing. And they're probably also doing their own outbound. Then they're taking those leads and given a certain deal size and a certain close rate, they're going to basically kind of guarantee a certain amount of deals for each sales rep on your team. That's going to leave them with a percentage of their monthly quota basically covered. So they, they basically know that if they close at the average close rate and the average deal size, then they're going to have some percentage of their monthly quota um, coming from sales development and marketing. And then there's going to be another percentage that they have to go get themselves. And being really explicit with your sales reps about what that percentage is that they have to close themselves and then working with them to make sure that they don't have to go do a bunch of uh, basically sales development level like research work to go get contact information and figure out who those leads are that they need to go close is, is really, really important. So for, for almost three years, we expected all of our closing reps to cover something like you know, 70% of their quota every month themselves, which meant that they had to go figure out who the companies were, who the people were, who the contact, contacts were, in addition to, to running a, an entire you know, sales effort to go and close those people once they found them. And so we were asking our account execs to do an extraordinary amount of work that usually they aren't asked to do um, at a company that's been around for three years and that is even, I guess, of our size. So how do you approach then hiring with Matamart now and scaling that org out into, you know, now you're, you're no longer the small startup. How many, 75 people? Uh, so I believe that we're just over 60 right now. Okay, so how do you approach then scaling out the sales team and what you look for in your sales reps then that make them Matamart worthy? Great question. I think it's really important whenever you're hiring salespeople to make sure that you're really explicit about what the conditions are that they're coming into, how there are different types of reps for different stages of the business. I'll talk a little bit about what we used to do and kind of what's changed. So when we were first hiring sales reps at Mattermark, we basically were just looking for, I wouldn't quite say that we're looking for a stereotypical salesperson, but um, we were looking for people who we could prove had a history of closing deals. Um, and again, this is I, this is where I went to a mentor who started a company and, and kind of led their sales organization and, and it was like a billion dollar company. He basically told me that, look, you want to find people who have a history of hitting quota for two to three years um, because if they can hit quota at a software company for two to three years and you know if, if they can't hit 
at your company, then you might have another problem. Do they need to have sold to the same customer profile that you have now with Matamark? I don't think so. Um, I think that could be beneficial, especially depending upon how much your company is able to provide them in terms of training and enablement material. So if you're really good at saying, hey, we have a bunch of stuff that you can read that's going to teach you everything about our customer profile, um, and you have a history of closing deals at a software company, then you're going to do great here. But if you don't have those materials and you're honestly not going to be able to train them that well, then I think it becomes more important for uh, for you to be able to hire somebody that does have a little bit of experience with your with your customer profile. You said about educational resources there. I'm intrigued. What does the onboarding process look like for you for new sales members? How do you kind of integrate them into the team and the culture quickly so they can hit the ground running from day one? <laughs> uh, there's, there's how how we do things right now, and then there's how I, I wish that we do things, and hopefully okay. let's, let's, let's do how you do things now, and then how you'd like to do them. <laughs> yeah, so it's still a little bit of the wild west for us. So, uh, new account exec starts. You know, we do all the basic stuff, in their paperwork, and uh, make it clear to them how their ramp is going to work, and how. And so, when I say ramp in sales, you know, you ramp over some period of time, whether that's thirty, sixty. Uh, 90 days or even six months, make the expectations really clear. But then uh, what we do is is we'll book up kind of a, a pretty full calendar for the reps' first two weeks to really just get, they get them educated about our business. Sitting in on calls with other sales reps, uh, meeting kind of key key members of our team. So, uh, like you know, we've got our machine learning guy that explains to them what machine learning is and why that we shouldn't call things artificial intelligence. Um, <laughs> All very important things. And and a lot of this the process though is. We have a, a kind of a structure of, of trainings. We've got some reading material, but a lot of it is, all right, now that you've had some of these trainings, you've learned about our customers, you learned about our product, you learned about our sales process, go in and start to make some mistakes, right? So make some calls or listen in or do a few like role play calls with our sales directors or, or things like that. So it's still pretty un- unstructured in that we have a structured set of trainings, but then there's a lot of kind of you need to go learn it yourself now. Um, and, and I think that that's still fair, but I'd like to do a lot more that is structured that we can have more things written down. So how would you, <laughs> yeah, how would you like that to look? What's the dream uh, onboarding process for you? Yeah, so I think the dream onboarding process for me is not just a, a calendar booked with meetings with different people from our company, but more of, of looking at it as an actual educational process with almost like classes that people have to take and, and even having to get almost like a certification in certain things. So the way that I think about training, there's three things you have to have every one of your reps trained on. <clears throat> and the first one is your customers. And with for us, we have customers who are venture capitalists, companies who, uh, customers who are in corporate development and in investment banking, they're angel investors. But then we also have this other side of our business, half of our business, which are B2B salespeople and the customer success people and sales development managers. And so a lot of different types of customers. So for us, the dream uh, would start with a really intense training on, on each of our, our different customer types, the personas, the use cases, all of that way before we get into our product. Because I think that if you train your salespeople on your customers first, then when you train them on the product, all that makes sense. They'll say, oh, I understand why we built it that way uh, and be able to connect the product to the customer a lot more successfully if they understand the customer first. Uh, And then finally, the third part would be just our sales process. Early on, we defaulted to saying, oh, we've got to train all of our sales reps on our sales process 
and our product first, kind of skip some of the customer part, which, which is the most important part, go figure, right? I'm intrigued with Massimo's product. It always strikes me as an interesting one because it's a very consumerized uh, B2B product at the end of the day to me. Um, so, so I always struggle in terms of the, the integration of sales and marketing for you guys and how you target leads. Is it an account-based marketing strategy of uh, you know fishing with a spear or is it very much a net-based approach now that you've scaled out to the level that you are? Yeah, so my so my first quarter really leading our our sales organization was a really interesting one because um, in April our VP of marketing Don had been at the company for something like I think two months, so she was just getting started, and we didn't really have a, a marketing organization to support sales uh, prior to that. Uh, you know, Nick obviously has been fantastic at Mattermark, but he's one guy. <laughs> yeah, Nick, Nick can only do so much. <laughs> right, yeah. He's one guy in, in our sales organization. Today, we've scaled up to be almost 30 people. And so or when I say sales organization, I mean sales development, sales operations, uh, account execs, managers, all of that. So in my first month, we transitioned kind of from casting a wide net to a lot more, uh, or not my first month, my first quarter, to a lot more of a fishing with a spear model, as you say. Each one of our reps now has a territory. Um, they all have named accounts that they target inside of those that we give them contact information for and all of that stuff so they can really um, hone in and focus. Additionally, our, our marketing team can, can follow up and they have the list of the accounts that everyone is targeting. So we've gotten much, much closer to an account-based marketing model, um, which is really exciting. And, and all that said, though, it's three, three and a half now, three and a half months into me leading this and maybe five or six months into us having a marketing team. So a lot of the stuff that we've been doing in the last three and a half months, we're going to see the benefits of here uh, coming up soon. But it's, it's stunning to me the organization we've built that we have today, what stuns me about it is that we took so long to build it. <laughs> I, I'm really intrigued. How do you think about close rates versus deal sizes and how they compare? And how have you found the kind of optimal relationship between them? Have you found, uh, you know, lower deal size, higher close rates more optimal? Or where, where are you guys placed in this uh, interesting relationship? Well, I think that that question... Actually, there's another question behind it, which is, what if you do if you can't trust your data? So that the question that you asked assumes that that you've been tracking your close rates and your deal sizes in a way that um, you can trust. And we have enough. But uh, something that I think is important for anyone else that's either starting a company or they're early on in a company and building a sales organization, we made a decision a year, like a year and a half ago. Uh, we were using a CRM. I'm going to answer your question eventually, but there's a little bit. It's a little bit roundabout. Like a year and a half ago, we were using a CRM called Relate IQ, which was bought by Salesforce. It's now called Salesforce IQ. We had an issue where when we when we'd log in, like everyone in our CRM was suddenly named like John Smith. So all of our data was corrupted. It happened often enough over the course of a week that we needed to switch off the CRM. So we switched really quickly onto a CRM called Base. And we switched to Base because we, we we didn't have the time or the money to really think through doing a Salesforce implementation right. And so we figured, let's get on Base. It'll be kind of our transition CRM. And then we'll get on to Salesforce. But as a result of using Base and Salesforce IQ or Relate IQ or whatever, so much of our data is in, uh, it's in spreadsheets. Agreeing upon definitions of your close rates is really important too. So when you talk about close rates, is that you know an opportunity to close rate or... Uh, and, and do you treat SQLs and opportunities the same way? Um, I heard I hear some people talk about close rates, and sometimes I wonder what that close rate actually is. Right. So for us, if we're looking at opportunity to close rate, and we're looking at our average deal size, when I was looking into that and kind of the math part of getting into sales, we have really it's really like five products, and we have 
some kind of experimental pricing on the bigger items there. But when I got into this three and a half months ago, we really were only giving our sales reps the tools to price the low MRR, like the low deal size products. And so our deal size was relatively low um, when I got started. So we have some bigger, bigger priced products that we're able to do um, a lot more with. But and those obviously have lower close rates, but we were looking at close rate kind of a backwards way until two and a half or three months ago. So I think that we still have low close rates and low deal sizes <laughs> across the board. So I wish I had, I wish I could tell you, oh yeah, we've got high close rates and on, on certain products, but right now we still have a lot of a lot of growth to do. I think it would you know intuitively make sense that you'd have a, a higher close rate on a lower deal a lower deal size, but I don't think that's necessarily true, right? I think that um, you want to look for industry standards and try to get as close to those as possible. And if you can't, then you want to have a pretty good reason as to why you can't get there. And it's more it's more in my opinion about just tracking it and having a goal and trying to improve. And before we dive into the quickfire round, I really want to hear how you established a compensation structure and model that really incentivized your sales team uh, and, and really created a kind of environment that allowed them to thrive. Yeah, that, yeah that's a great question. I, I think that we actually, I think that we, we did a lot of our initial sales structure by reading Jason's blog. <laughs> Um, he'll be very pleased yeah i'm sure he will and jason's blog is pretty it's pretty interesting so he's got an article there about you know compensation for your early reps a good model of looking at that i think that every one of your reps should should be it's something like 20 to 25 percent of their overall arr contributions should be their uh overall on target earnings so then you take their on target earnings and 50% of that should be their base and 50% of it should be their variable percentage or their variable uh, component. Then you have to come up with how you break that down on monthly or quarterly quotas and a commission that you're giving everyone. And even early on at Mattermark, we, we were giving an incredibly generous commission percentage to all of our reps. We'd basically give everyone 25%, almost 25% on every dollar that they closed in revenue. Do you think you have to do that in today's competitive hiring environment for, for truly talented salespeople? It doesn't hurt from the rep's perspective for you to be giving them an incredible compensation, like an incredible compensation package. It can hurt the business, right? From a cash perspective, it's just going to make things more difficult for you later when you have to go sit down with those reps and say, hey, remember that huge OTE that we were giving you? Well, we, we, we can't give you that anymore because um, it was crazy. Because <laughs> we, we can't make money in our business if we keep, if we keep paying you this. Um, and then they say, well, I don't understand because you've been paying me this for the last year and a half. Um, so I think it's important just to get a good compensation model up front that is good for the business in terms of gives you the ability to make money, but also has some pretty lucrative upside for when the reps are making money. And so I think that that's the real key there is that there's, uh, that there's a lucrative upside for your reps when they're achieving uh, and that you don't just give them a high percentage of your of all the MRR that they close, um, even when they're not quite hitting goal, because that's where you get into really weird territory. Is that when you have a rep who's not hitting their goals, but they're making a lot of money? <laughs> do, you, do you agree with the hire fast, fire fast uh, discipline with regards to the sales team? Oh, this is a great question. Yes, and it's it's a really easy question to ask, and it's a really easy question for everyone who is a fan of startups and all that stuff to just kind of pontificate about, oh, well, yeah, you should hire fast and, and you should and fire fast. Of course you should do that. But then when you're sitting across the table from someone that you hired two months ago that you promised um, that you're going to support them and, and do as much as you can to, to make them successful and you're telling them, hey, sorry, uh, we have to let you go because it's not a fit. There's a little bit that's disingenuous there because when you hire someone, you make a commitment. And, and honestly, if you're firing someone two months after you hired them, you screwed up. So what, every time that I've done that, it's like, well, 
I screwed up or we screwed up here because we probably should never have hired this person in the first place, which goes back to your question earlier about what do you look for in a rep when you're hiring them. Um, and I think that it's really, really important that if you're going to, if you're going to hire fast, get really clear on what your criteria are for success for that rep and make sure that you're interviewing for those things. Because if you do not do that, then you're going to end up firing fast and it's going to be your fault. And I want to dive into the quick fire round now, uh, moving from quick fires to right. 60 seconds faster quick fires. Um, yeah. How fitting. Uh, okay, so let's start with uh, what do you know now which you wish you'd known on day one of being head of sales? Yeah, I think that the most important thing to look for is what is your marketing and sales development driven quota coverage for each account executive? And then what is the percentage of their quota that each account executive needs to get themselves? And then how do you make sure that you get them as much of the work as possible in terms of contacts, accounts, and all that stuff to go hit so they don't have to go do all that research SDR work themselves? If I had known that on day one, I think that we would have had much more productive reps at the end of the quarter than we had. And then productivity hacks and tools. What are your must-haves? Oh, personally, I'm a, I'm a huge OmniFocus user. Yeah, I use OmniFocus every day to get everything out of my inbox, to put deadlines, to follow up with everyone at the company and externally. Uh, and then I also use Evernote and I have calendar blocks and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm super like uh, OCD about my organization and OmniFocus really helps me make sure I don't drop the ball on things. Your favorite SaaS reading material? You've mentioned James there, not James, Jason there a couple of times. Uh, so, so what's your favorite reading material when you get a chance? Yeah, I mean, I love, I love Jason's blog. I'm obviously a big fan of the Mattermark Daily. Uh, not just we because both love Mattermark Daily. Yeah, <laughs> right. There's so many good things in there when I actually get the time to read it. And then I actually have a book that I love that I don't hear many people discuss. Just about leading a SaaS company. It has an awkward title. It's called How to Lead or How to Castrate a Bull. And it's by Dave Hitz, who's one of the co-founders of NetApp. And it's a really fantastic uh, entrepreneurship book that I, that I think I'd recommend that more people read. What character trait then most impresses you in a sales rep? Is it the, the kind of innate hunger? Is it a data-driven approach that you don't see often? What is it for you? I think that the most important thing in a sales rep, and honestly, anybody at a business, is, what, is, is agency. So in the face of uh, ambiguity or a, or a hard situation or even an unfair situation, when somebody says, you know, this is in my control and I can do something about this immediately in order to move the ball forward, um, that's the thing that I love the most. I had a, a sales guy that I, I interviewed from Google once, and I, I asked this question. I always say, can you share a story about a time that you felt like you were treated unfairly or you felt slighted? This guy uh, had the best answer to this question. He said, I had a shared quota. Uh, with somebody else. And then this person went on maternity leave. So I went to my boss and I said, Hey, um, what do I do now? Is the quota cut in half? And his boss said, no, you have to hit the same quota. And I said, wow, that, that really sucks. That sounds really unfair. And he said, and what did you do? And I said, well, I, I hit the quota. <laughs> <laughs> I take it you hired him. I tried to. Unfortunately, we didn't win that one. Um, but uh, but that's the kind of thing that I look for in a sales rep uh, is, is for them to basically say, okay, any problem or challenge that I'm going to face is something that is within my control to solve. And people who don't do that end up just, just failing very fast inside of, of the fast-growing sales organizations. And then what's the hardest hire for you at Matamart today? What's consistently challenging to get a good uh, position for? I feel like we've gotten a lot better at this. Like the one part of the company that is underdeveloped for us is is customer success. One customer success manager that we have at Mattermark is fantastic, but we do need to hire another one. We just finished hiring for product marketing and for uh, a PM. Um, we're hiring another PM right now too, so um, that's that's one. But I wouldn't say that any of those are particularly impossible. I think that machine learning engineers are, you know, now I don't participate in that hiring too significantly, but 
machine learning engineers are extremely difficult to hire because everyone wants them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them just want to wax philosophically uh, as opposed to really dig in. And, and, you know, they want to talk about AI when in reality there's no such thing as AI right now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, well, well, I wish you the best of luck with that hiring process. Thank you. But then moving away now from, from the financials that we spoke about earlier of salary and compensation, I want to finish today by discussing communication internally and how you set the right weekly and monthly kind of cadence in terms of communication with a range of you know contributors, be it individuals, managers, executive teams, founding teams. What's your contribution cadence and how do you lay that out? Yeah, so uh, this this was this is one that I think I'm just nailing down after a quarter of, of trying a lot of different things. <laughs> so for one thing, starting at the board level, um, when I took over our sales organization three and a half or so months ago, I set a every other week Monday afternoon call with Brad Feld, who sits on our board, um, just to kind of walk him through. Hey's you know all, all my plans and the progress on everything that we set out at the beginning of the quarter, uh, and he's been really helpful in just giving me feedback um, on yeah. everything from forecasting to 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 the sales plan. Brad's so a legend. That, yeah, Brad's fantastic. We're, we're, we're very lucky to be able to work with him. Going on the other, all the way in the other direction to um, working with all of our individual contributors, all of our AEs, we have a number of weekly meetings that we set. So every, every Monday morning we have a 10 a.m. Uh, weekly sync that basically addresses one or two items in the first 30 minutes that we've set aside that the reps can kind of submit that they want to make sure they talk about, whether it's uh, sales training or whether it's talking about competitors, et cetera. And then the second 30 minutes is always just kind of a, a free-for-all group discussion about uh, issues or problems that they're running into. And then uh, on Tuesday afternoons, we've got a, a mandatory sales process training from our sales operations manager <laughs> to, to kind of talk about new processes and also talk about adherence issues that we're having with CRM and, and data to make sure that we actually can trust this, the data that we're, um, that we're entering in. And then on Thursday afternoon, we have an, an, an all, like, kind of an all-hands AE uh, pipeline review where everyone walks through everything from business case to commit. And that's really good because the reps kind of get to learn from different deals, but um, also no one wants to go to a pipeline review with nothing in their pipeline. <laughs> this is very true. That would be a very bad review. Um, right. But Andy, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. For me, it's been fantastic. Hey, as I said, as a fan of Matamot for a long time, it's been so great to hear the internal machinations that, that are Matamot. So, so thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Uh, and I can't wait to see Matamot progress in the future. Great. Thanks a lot, Harry. I really appreciate you having me on. I want to say again a huge thank you to Andy for giving up his time today to come on the show. I've really wanted to have him on for a while, so I'm so thrilled that we got that in the diary. And if you're loving all things Sasta, then you can stay in touch with us by following me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, or you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK, or hey, even head to the home of Sasta itself and go to sasta.com, S-A-A-S-T-R.com, for a whole host of resources and articles written by the main man Jason himself and further podcasts. As always, we so appreciate your support and look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.